God. Wonderful time. Wonderful thing. I think people hate the Sabbath as much as they do anything else on this earth. Most people in religion hate the Sabbath. They misuse and abuse Sunday and don't keep it really as a Sabbath. Most of them at all. It's just another day that you also go to church and then do your thing. So the Sabbath is very, very precious. I'm thankful for it. We do have uh, the beginning of spring this week. The 20th is the equinox, 21st, and then that's the official beginning of spring, so I always look forward to springtime. I heard some doves cooing this morning as I was sitting in my office, and it's uh, always such a pleasant sound. I've noticed a few buds beginning to come on a few things out in the backyard this morning as well, so it's uh, life begins anew, and our life in Christ through the Passover shortly begins anew too every year. So I always look forward to springtime. Well, we've been going through, uh, well, before I go there, we do have a dinner coming up on Wednesday evening at 6, six o'clock, I think we got 6.30. Dinner at 6.30 on Wednesday. We have the sign-up sheet done, so I'm sure everything's in order and plans are well underway for that. Durham, of course, represents the deliverance of the Jews, God's people, uh, back in Esther's day. And it was set as a memorial to be kept. It's included in Scripture. And I think that it certainly has great historical significance, but I think the prophetic significance just ahead of us is far more important, really, than the deliverance that came then. God's delivered people whom He's chosen many, many times, whether it be individuals from lions or fire or war or whatever. He's delivered ancient Israel from slavery. He's delivered people on and on and on it goes. And He delivered the Jews at that time. Of course, we're the spiritual Jews. Our deliverance from Satan and this system is not very far away. So we need to be praying as they did and serving and counting what God has done for us in the past so that we might have confidence and faith in the deliverance that is to come because things are looking more and more grim day by day. Just yesterday, there was a, instead of Christian churches being attacked, this time it was two mosques in Christ Church, New Zealand, where I was a couple, three weeks ago, right there in Christchurch, and killed 49 people, injured a bunch more. They blamed it on a Trump supporter, but they're finding out that that isn't the case at all. Uh, he's a communist through and through, but nonetheless, it's used as something to use against America to help bring us down, is what the mainstream media is using it as. So, things get worse and worse, and God's deliverance is nigh, so... We need to look to and pray toward that. Well, we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and he's covered in this a lot of issues, a lot of problems, a lot of conscience matters, uh, how to handle sin of various kinds. 
gifts from God, how to handle tongues. It's quite a, a wide thing in terms of doctrine and belief and church administration that Paul has handled. But in chapter 15 today, he gets back to the very basics of what it's all about. He's going to conclude the book uh, primarily with this instruction and then some salutations in 16. But this is a very, very important chapter because he's gone through a lot. He's corrected them. He's chided them. He's directed and guided them. And yet, what does that mean unless there's something more? I mean, there's a lot of churches, there are a lot of different religions, and they have a lot of different beliefs, but what good does that do them unless there's a benefit in the long run? Why do we go through the things we go through? Why do we put up with what we put up with? Why do we fight ourselves day and night? That we might be more like God and like Christ. But there has to be a goal and a purpose in that. And that's what he gets to in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He kind of levels the playing field and sums up what this is all about to give us hope, to give us impetus, to give us inspiration, to give us desire to overcome. There's an awful lot tied up here in this book. It's not just a, a doctrinal thing of a few verses that... Uh, that tell us what we ought to think about the resurrection, for instance. There's a whole lot more to it than that. So let's examine it today in the context in, what it, in which it is given and see if we can get a fuller meaning of the message that is here for us. Because all this correction and guidance and instruction and doctrine that went before this really means nothing unless we accomplish something greater in the long run. It's got to be a greater purpose. So he's just set in order uh, the thing of languages and tongues and how everything needed to be done decently and in order and no confusion in the church. Uh, that was one of that was the last issue of, of problems that he addressed. Then he says, moreover, or in addition, or uh, what I need to cover next, brethren. I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you have received, wherein you stand. So in that specific purpose statement, he's saying, I'm going to go over why you're here. So you understand what's going on and what I've given you in the past, and you're standing in it, but let's review it. Let's go over it. Uh, because all this other stuff really doesn't matter unless this be true. So he says, the gospel I preached to you, you heard, and you're standing in it, that's why you're here, by which also you are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached to you, unless you believe in faith. But he wants to go over some basics here of their belief and why they were there, what this all means. Uh, you know, when you've corrected a child or anyone, uh, you need to then show love and kindness and affection and a direction for that child to go, because the direction he was going was getting him in trouble. 
whether it was the cookie jar or touching the stereo or or driving too fast or whatever, depending on age and so on, he was headed for trouble. So you do what is necessary to straighten his attitude and conduct out, but then with that, which is difficult, because we don't like to be corrected. We don't like to be told what to do. It's against our nature. We want to do what we want to do. So when somebody comes and corrects us, as Paul had been doing here, and sometimes pretty severely in this book, he wants to leave them with inspiration, with power, with desire, with a goal in mind, and show his, his love for them before he closes the letter. So it helps when we have guidance, instruction, and correction. To have some love supplied with that, or at the end, after it has been received, so that we feel confident, you know, somebody's not against me, they're not here to hurt me, they're not trying to destroy me. They did that for my good, so that I might do better, or be better. Uh, that was the purpose of it. So he gets into that here. He says, what I've told you can save you. Save you from what? From this human life, deliver us into a better life, an afterlife, that is far superior to that which we have been having. I started to say enjoying. I don't know if this life is always enjoyed or not. But this life we've been living in any case. So he says, the things that I told you before, and I've been saying here again, can save you. If you keep in memory what I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. It's easy to forget things that we have been taught and told. It's easy to hear a sermon on Sabbath and then get distracted by whatever conversation and walk out and forget for the moment pretty much everything that was said. You could ask some, somebody could ask you maybe on Wednesday what the sermon was about Sabbath, and it would be kind of like what you had for breakfast or lunch on Monday. Well, what do we think about that? It's easy to forget. Herbert Armstrong instructed us in a lot of things. Some of them we've kept. Some are easy to forget. Some are easy to set aside or put on the back burner. And we have learned a great deal from this book in the years since we've begun to understand prophecy and how the scriptures all go together. But it's easy to let some of it slip. Just as many, many tens of thousands of people who were in the church have now let the Sabbath slip, they've let the Holy Days slip, they've let their purpose in life go, and many of them are back in Protestant churches. I guess thinking they're going to get a harp and a, some wings. I don't know. Um, but they've forgotten what God brought us here for. By the tens of thousands. So he says, these things can save you if you don't forget them. And then your belief becomes vain. You went through all of this for what? You're just going to die. And perhaps die eternally in the lake of fire. Verse 2, By which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached to you, lest you believe in vain. Well, I just read that. Let's go on. 
For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now that is basic and very, very important as a beginning. When we understand the plan of salvation, it has to begin with how Christ died for us and our sins, that he can wipe out our sins in his blood because his life was worth more than all our lives and blood combined. He was a spirit being and God, and he gave all that up and became human in order to die for our sins. So he's pretty serious about this. Uh, he's serious about sin because God had to die that the issue of sin can be resolved. So when we sin, every time we sin, we are opening up his flesh for his blood to pour out. Because it was our sins that killed him. It wasn't just the Jews and Pontius Pilate who didn't want to kill him. It was you. It was me. It was us. The whole world that he died for. So everyone's sins have to be taken into account. And his sacrifice is big enough to cover all of ours. Now it's very, very important that we get this. Is the first thing that he brings out. He says, first of all, Christ died for our sins. Now, is it acceptable to us that our sins no longer remain? That is very difficult sometimes for people to accept because they look back on their lives, they've made many mistakes, they've committed many sins, they've made many errors, and they feel sometimes a great deal of conscience over that. They feel insecure. They feel uh, unimportant. Sometimes they feel worthless, depending on the variety of nature and the depth of sin and so on. So sin can have an incredible impact upon our lives, and it also can have a great deal of impact of what other people think of us and how we react to how they feel toward us as a result of things we may have done. So, sin has an impact, is what I'm saying. And that impact needs to be able to be removed so that we feel free from it. If you have a bad conscience over whatever it might be, that affects your faith toward God. It affects your faith in Christ's blood being big enough to cover your sins. I have talked to many people over the years who had great difficulty in giving up their sins themselves. Even though God, the Father, and Christ might have forgiven them, they have great difficulty forgiving themselves. So they live on with a bad conscience, not having enough faith to believe that no matter how bad they have been, Christ's sacrifice was big enough for them, for you, for me, for all of us. 
That is a matter of faith. It is a matter of trust. That He actually has and will forgive our sins. So people tend to carry them around with them instead of letting them go, leaving them behind, and moving on with life into the future. You can't change the past. You can't fix it. You can't do anything about it. It's done. It's over. But God can fix it. He's not going to go make you go back and go through it again. He's not going to make you relive it. He's just going to remove it. I think that's something that even a lot of church people don't grasp. I've covered it more than once, but I, I think it maybe here behooves us to consider again for a moment. But you can't live in the past. You're, you're divorced from it. God, through Christ's blood, simply removes it. And if it's not there, why do you worry about it? If it's not there, why do your friends and neighbors and relatives worry about it? It seems that we have trouble forgetting, forgiving ourselves and forgetting. And others have trouble forgetting too. But God says, I will remove it as far as the east is from the west. That's, that's a big departure far as it can get. Now, you and I need to understand that when he talks about separating the sheep from the goat, he's not talking about the first resurrection. He's talking about the millennium and the second resurrection, in which people are given a period of time physically if they survive the Holocaust and the millennium. They're given a period of time to learn the truth and see if they will follow it or not. And then judgment is made upon them day by day during that period of time they have to live during the millennium. And he is sorting out and sifting. And at the end of the millennium, those who are alive, the decision has to be made on, and they'll either go this way or that way. And the same is true in the great white throne judgment. You have all these people from aborted babies to old people who have died who never knew the truth, never had a chance. They'll come up in that physical resurrection in Revelation 20, as is explained. And they will have a physical life in which they are judged day by day and whether or not they accept God's way or not. And Satan will be bound during that time. So they won't have to worry about him. Now we need to grasp how heavily Satan is able to influence us and the world. We have to grasp that. Because even after people who've lived, say in the millennium, the great white throne judgment, well the millennium is what I'm thinking of, he's bound during that thousand years. And the world is in peace, happiness, prosperity, and obedience to God. 
And as soon as he is loosed for a short season, he very quickly affects the Gentile nations to come up and attack the camp of God, New Jerusalem, God's own throne, which will be here at that time. After a thousand years of peace and prosperity under the rule of God and Christ, and us, the world will live and reign with him a thousand years. Satan can very, just almost instantly, turn millions and millions of people, maybe hundreds of millions, against God, just like that. He can powerfully broadcast his attitude, and we see it around us today in the way people act and react. But he can do it just that quickly. God says it will happen. So the battle we fight is a spiritual battle. It is not just ourselves, but it's principalities and powers, Satan and demons, who can can have such a fast and deep impact upon us. And we need to realize that and put on the whole armor of God. But our salvation is being determined right now. We are judged day by day. When that first resurrection comes, which we're going to get down to here a little bit today, you will either rise to meet Christ in the air, or you won't. It won't be a judgment for us whereby we come before his throne when he gets here, and he decides whether we're a sheep or a goat. We're being judged day by day. And we will either be resurrected or changed in a moment, or we won't. Because that judgment is already made. He says that if we qualify, our sins will never be mentioned to us. So if you're changed when he returns, he's already said, you passed. I accept you. You're in my kingdom. So he's not going to sit down with us and have an entry interview where he goes over every sin that we ever committed in our lives and then tells us, you know, I didn't really want you, but yeah, if you'd have done that one more time, it was that close. I don't, but okay, I'll let you in. Against my better judgment, more or less, but yeah, come on. Is that the way you want to enter into eternal life in the kingdom of God? To sit down before Christ and the holy angels and have him go through your life, sin by sin, and then tell you, well, yeah, I forgave that, I forgave that, I forgave that. That would go on for quite some time. If he had to name them all. But he says our sins won't even be mentioned to us. If you're in, you're in. And then those people in the Millennium and Great White Throne Judgment will go day by day, just as you and I are today. Our judgment is now. And theirs will be then. And at the end of this life, whether we die or whether we're still alive and remain, he will have already made his decision. And we'll either rise or we won't. But it won't be to talk about our sins. It'll be to help him rule because our sins will have been forgiven and gone. So there's nothing to talk about. He 
says, well, I remember the past. Who cares? Go off. we got something better now. So don't worry about that. Well, we need to come to have that same kind of faith and confidence now. Paul did. By the time he finished his life, he said, I've finished the course. I've run the race. I've been faithful. I know that I'm going to be in the kingdom of God. He had confidence and faith in that. I would like to come to have that kind of faith and confidence, to know before this life ends or Christ returns, whichever comes first, to know that God has forgiven me, that God has accepted me, that I've run the race, Huffing and panting, maybe, and staggering and stumbling, but I finished the race. We've got to finish the race. So, Paul came to have that level of faith and confidence. So, he's telling us here that we need to do the same thing. I told you how Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The Old Testament would say that he would come and do that. And if he died for them, and his blood washed them away, they aren't there anymore. You know what worrying about the past does to you? It keeps you from accomplishing what you need to do in the future. You have known people, and so have I, who are so busy worrying about the past and what they've done and who they did it to and what's been done to them and all their failures and their problems and faults in life, all the things that have gone wrong. And it stunts their growth because all they can think about is what has been, not what shall be. You can't fix that. It's done. But God gives you a way to move away from it. He doesn't want to step in it. I'll bring up Deuteronomy right there. He told them when they were camping in the desert, there were millions of them, apparently, maybe three, four million people. The camp was huge. So he says, when you go forth out of the camp to stretch yourself abroad, take a paddle or a shovel with you and cover that up which comes out of you. Because I don't want to step in it if I happen to go walking through the camp at night. Our bodily processes are something that are there, but they're not pretty. I think they're there to help humble us and realize we are yet just human. But nobody wants to step in it. Get rid of it. So, if you have sins in the past... I think they're equivalent to the physical waste that I'm talking about. Why do you keep walking in it? What good does that do you? Why do you make other people walk in it? What good does it do them? Christ said, I don't want to walk in it. I want it gone. You you better recognize the urge because this is a big camp and you've got to get clear out there and not mess the camp up. Now, he doesn't want our sins messing our lives up, and he doesn't want them messing his kingdom up. 
So they have to be gotten rid of, gone. So if that is his goal and purpose, we need to do the same thing. Now part of the problem that some people deal with is we don't like to simply count our blessings and be content, okay? We like to feel sorry for ourselves for the things that we don't have or wish we had or used to have or whatever. We like to wallow in self-pity. Oh, woe is me. Oh, that I could do this. Oh, that I could do that. Oh, that I had done this. We like pity parties because we like to feel sorry for ourselves and wish somebody else did too. God doesn't like pity parties. He has given us every opportunity to get over our pity parties. What is a pity party? It is a self-centered way for a human being to try to wish things were better and it doesn't do him a bit of good because they won't get better just because he pities himself and feels sorry for himself. Feeling sorry for ourselves is also a plea for others to feel sorry for us. Because surely if they see how I am and how things are and I complain and gripe and moan about it, then they'll feel sorry for me too. You know what it makes them want to do for the most part? Get away from you. They don't enjoy that. They don't appreciate that. You know, we, we do the little thing. Well, well, we'll play you a little recording. You know, oh, woe is me, poor, poor, pitiful me. There's a song entitled, Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me. I just came to my mind. Oh, woe is me. It doesn't do anybody any good. doesn't do you any good. makes you feel bad. Gives you an excuse to drink, gives you an excuse to smoke, gives you an excuse to do whatever it is you're prone to do because, oh, poor me, I need, I need, I need. Well, that isn't what God tells us. We're not to be sitting around feeling sorry for what we don't have. We're to be thankful for what we do have. That's what he tells us very clearly. Be thankful for what you do have. And if you're thankful for what you do have, you don't have time to feel sorry about what you don't have. But it is so human to feel sorry for ourselves and our state in the way that things are. Don't feel sorry about it. Fix it. Whatever is lacking, replace with something else. Do something good. Make something good. Uh, Work on what you have to do with. Crawling into the corner and curling up and moaning till you die is not the answer. It's just not the answer. You can't live in the past. You can't worry about what you don't have. You have to plan and prepare and be thankful for what you do have. That's what he's going to... I think, try to get across here. Remember that God can deliver you from whatever it is. That's what he says here. 
He came and died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So he has promised us wonderful things in the past if we'll simply believe him and trust him that he will take away the bad and give us the good. That gives us reason to live, reason to breathe, reason to move forward with life, is because we're anticipating that we're going to receive nothing but good in the future from God. He is going to bless us beyond our fondest dreams, if we will but believe him and follow him. So that's in the future, isn't it? The past is gone. You can't relive it. You can't redo it. It is what it is. So now get on with today and tomorrow. And today you do the best you can and you forget it and move on to tomorrow. He tells us in Lamentations, we have a new day every day. He gives us a new day. We ask forgiveness. We ask for mercy. He grants it. The sun comes up and he says, all right, go get them, boys. Here's you a new day. You don't have to worry about yesterday. It's forgiven and forgotten. Unless you keep doing the same thing over and over. But he doesn't want us to live in the past. He says when we're in the kingdom of God, we'll completely forget the past. No reason to even go back and think about it or talk about it. We'll have so much exciting going on then that there's no time for all that. Forget it. Move on. Now, we're to be learning that day by day here. Yesterday's done. Move on. Got a new day to work. What do we feel sorry about ourselves for? Things that have either happened or we've done in the past, and we're still dragging that sack around behind us, Or there could be other things. We might consider our faults and lacks and weaknesses and be depressed and feel sorry for ourselves about those. But you know what those faults and weaknesses have done? They've made you do the wrong thing in the past and think the wrong thing. So whatever they are, today is the new day. The sun just came up. Let's move away from those as much as we can today. Tomorrow, if we don't get it done, we'll move away from it some tomorrow until we get away from it. Got to get away from it. Isn't that what you do with the toilet? You flush it. You get it away. Same thing he told you about camp. Go out, bury it, get away from it. And don't do it here in the camp where people have to see and smell and step. So he wants us to remove ourselves from sin and wasting our lives and use them in a productive way. So if you're busy doing what you need to be doing, you don't have time to sit around and feel sorry for yourself because you're busy with something worthwhile. Now, what is worthwhile? He's going to tell us what's worthwhile here. 
that we've been humans, we've sinned, and Christ died for them. So they're gone if we believe in his sacrifice and his blood. They're not to be worried about. We also believe he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. It's all there. The story's all there. And if you don't believe it, he was seen of Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present, but some have died. So he says, this is something that was seen by a lot of people. There are witnesses that he died, and we saw him die, and we saw him alive again three days later, and after that is as he appeared to them. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, after seeing, being seen by Peter, all the apostles, and then later the 500. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. So Paul wasn't there as one of the original apostles. He didn't see Christ as he walked about the earth. But later, Christ came to him in the desert and taught him for the same period of time that he had taught the disciples when he was here. So it was after he had gone back to his father and been glorified that he came and appeared to Paul again and taught him. So he said, last of all, he was seen of me. Uh, he hadn't uh, He hadn't said, I'll not come back and forth a few times. He told the disciples or the apostles, I won't see you much hereafter until I come back in glory. So he doesn't come down and be seen very often, but he did with Paul. And as far as Paul knew, and probably is the case, he was the last one that he came to see uh, during that particular era. I don't know that he's come to see anybody since. Maybe he has and we don't know about it back in the Middle Ages or something, you know, but maybe not. On the other hand, I would not be surprised if he does here at the very end. He does say then, Zechariah 2, I will come and dwell with you. He doesn't say whether he's going to be visible or not. But will he manifest himself as he did to Paul? Very possible. It's been done in the past, maybe done again. He came down and showed himself to Abraham and a few others in the Old Testament. He did with the disciples when he was here and the public in general. And then Paul afterward, well, and the disciples afterward as well. And then he, he rose again out of their sight there in Acts 1. So he's telling these people, I'm not just telling you a fairy tale, something I dreamed up. There are a lot of people that saw this. Then he goes on about himself in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, and am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But before Christ appeared to him as a very great Koran-thumping Pharisee, he had killed as many church members as he could find and get killed. He was very zealous about what he did. He was zealous in the faith once he learned it, but he had been very zealous about killing people before. So he says, I'm not 
like the others. I'm, I don't deserve to be an apostle. Now, let's use that as an example for what I've been talking about here. What if God called you into the church and you had been Rahab? You'd been a just an out-and-out hooker. I've talked with some over the years who were trying to get their lives straightened out, and they had a huge hurdle to pass because they felt unworthy, they felt cheap, they felt worthless, they felt that God could not do anything with them. Well, what about Rahab? She's going to be in the kingdom of God. She was just another mattress back like any other. She's going to be in the kingdom of God because Christ's sacrifice was big enough to cover her sins. What about Paul? Killing Christians every time he got a chance. Now, if you had murdered, let's say in Worldwide Church of God, you decided that uh, you didn't like those people. Maybe you weren't a member yet. You didn't like those people. So you went around killing as many as you could kill. Maybe kill dozens, hundreds, thousands, who knows. And then God calls you. And he says, I want you to be one of them. Well, wait a minute here. I thought I was supposed to kill them all. Now you want me to be one? Well, that's what happened when he struck him down on the road to Damascus. He said, Paul, I want you to be one of them. And Paul's thinking, what? And he says, don't kick against it, Paul. <laughs> don't rebel. You're going to be one of them. Ooh. And he was blind. <laughs> you know? Couldn't see anymore. That probably made him think. If he hadn't been struck blind, he might have resisted more. But when he was groping around as a totally blind man, it had a powerful effect. And he listened. And he heard. And then he accepted the teachings of Christ out there in the desert. Because as a Pharisee, let's face it, he didn't know nothing. Pharisees didn't know nothing. Judaism, the religion, still today knows nothing. They don't have a clue what this book is all about. So Paul had to be educated just like the other apostles. But you know... He got over his past. All that killing and murder and hate, he got over. He didn't hate Christians anymore. He loved them enough to give his life to them. To go, to teach, to preach, to encourage, to strengthen, to correct, to guide. Because he came to love the people he had hated and been killing. That's a pretty good transformation if you stop and think about it a little bit. Not easy. How many people do you know who come to have a great hatred for someone but simply put it out of their mind and get over it and then become supporting and loving toward that which they hate it? Now, most, most situations where you've seen human hate, it goes deep and it stays long. And people don't get over it very often. Very difficult to do. But Paul had that, and he got completely over it and came to love them. Now, his sin of the past, 
He divorced himself from. He got away from it. And was there preaching love. If Paul could make that transformation, we can also walk away from our past, leave it behind, and do good. Well, if we're here to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which is what Romans 12, 1 tells us to do, we don't have time to feel sorry for ourselves. Because we're busy serving and giving and doing for others in whatever way we can find to do it. And if you are doing that, you don't have time for self-pity. All it is, is vanity, ego, and self-centeredness, is what self-pity is. And does God want us self-centered? No. He wants us Christ-centered and centered on helping others as best we can. Love Him and love others and put them ahead of ourselves instead of feeling sorry for ourselves for what we aren't or don't have. There's not time for that. It's just selfish to wallow in self-pity. But we all tend to do it from time to time. Some people just live that way. It's just what their life amounts to. Now, that's, that's a fun way to live. Oh, I feel so bad about me. Oh, woe is me. Oh, I feel bad about me. That's a fun life, isn't it? No, it's not a bit of fun. But with a lot of people, that is their life. They're so self-centered, it's all they can think about is, woe is me. So they write songs about it. How many different blues songs are there? Well, we feel so sorry for ourselves over whatever it is that we feel sorry for ourselves about. No, you got to get past it, move on, and do something that is worthwhile, something that God would want to save. Do you really think he's going to want to spend eternity with 144,000 saying, Oh, if you'd have just moved me up one chair, oh, things would be so much better if I was just up there three more seats. You know, whatever. You think he wants to hear all this moaning and groaning and so on in his kingdom forever? Nah. He wants to get away from it. And in fact, if people are going to be that way, he's just going to burn them up, and that's the end of it, because he's not going to tolerate that in his kingdom. We've got to get beyond that and lead a happy, joyful life, Christ-centered and other people-centered instead of self-centered. So he says, I am the least of the apostles, and I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Now, he could have, he could have changed it right there from verse 9 down and spent the next 43 chapters telling them how sorry he was for himself because he had not been what he ought to be, and he didn't have everything he should have, and he wasn't an original apostle, so he's not as good as the other apostles. He could have cried and cried for another 40 chapters. 
but that's not what he did. <coughs> I persecuted the church. He says, okay, I killed people. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, that's a statement of thankfulness. Because he's saying, I didn't deserve being delivered from what I was. But God delivered me, and I have a lot to be thankful for now. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, he also still recognized himself as a wretched man. The things he wanted to do, he didn't do, and the things he didn't want to do, he did. So as a human being, he was still prone to sin. <coughs> but he knew that if he fought the fight and did the job that God had given him to do, he would be okay. So he was living in the grace of God and thankful for it. You know, I can think back, and you probably can too, of times when God has delivered you. I think of several times when I really should have been dead, and it didn't happen. Maybe God was just giving me grace and hoping I'd straighten up and be what I should be. But he preserved my life for whatever reasons he had. And I have no doubt in some cases that was exactly what he did. No doubt whatsoever. I think I've recounted a time or two that I was having Bible studies over in the Bahamas and went over there every three months when I was pastoring the Miami church. And one day my wife and I flew out from Nassau to one of the outer islands to visit a, pro a prospect or two, whatever it was, one I remember. And uh, as we were flying back, it was a charter plane. This is the pilot and my wife and I in the plane. That's all there was. Flying along, uh, getting fairly close back to Nassau, and suddenly the plane just jumped straight up. Right straight up. And as it went up, I saw another airplane flash by right beneath us. We were headed for a head-on collision, undoubtedly. And that plane just jumped straight up. And the pilot said, what happened? I didn't do that. So I didn't move the, the stick. I was just sitting here flying. And all of a sudden, the plane jumped. He said, I didn't do it. He went on and on. He was so amazed. But we were headed for a head-on collision, undoubtedly. When he did get the plane down safely, he didn't even say goodbye. He just jumped out of his door and said, I've got to have a drink and headed for the bar. So we got ourselves out <laughs> and walked away. But that was fairly dramatic in my life. I remember it very clearly. And there are others just about as dramatic as that. I remember one time... We were doing some visiting there in the Miami area somewhere, some one of the towns. And uh, my wife would act as the navigator. We didn't have GPS and all that that would tell you, you know, where the sparrows were on the porch at somebody's house. Uh, so we'd use the map, and she'd navigate and tell me where to turn. And uh, she was looking for an address while I was driving. And uh, we hadn't seen it yet, hadn't seen it yet. And uh, she says, wait a minute, slow down. 
So I hit the brakes. And right then a car flashed by right in front of us. Her door would have been T-boned if she hadn't said, slow down. I'm looking for this address and I, I can't read it. Slow down. Is that happenstance? I've seen too many of those things. We'd have had a terrible accident right there. The guy had completely run a stop sign and would have hit the side of the car. And I might have killed us both because he was moving pretty fast. So, you know, I could sit here and tell you a bunch of those, and you can tell me some as well. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm thankful for what God has done. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. He says, I took the bit in my mouth, and I'm doing what he told me to do. Well, now, he had a great purpose in preaching and teaching and guiding people. What about you? Maybe you weren't called to do that. What is your job? Your job is to put God first, obey Him in every possible way, please Him as much as you can in what you do and say and think. And the other is to love your neighbor as yourself and give yourself as a living sacrifice for your neighbor. That's what he tells us we're to do. Love him most, love our neighbor next, and present our bodies as a living sacrifice to do whatever we can for others. Well, now, if you're doing that, how much time do you have to feel sorry for yourself? None, because you're busy trying to figure out how to help somebody, how to do something for somebody. Well, you're limited. Maybe you're not very educated, you're not very bright, you're not very athletic, you're old, you're crippled, you're blind, you're deaf. You know, we all got problems. Well, what do you do? You overcome whatever problems you have and do the job anyway. Let's talk about Paul again. He had an affliction in his eyes. And he wrote with great big letters because he was almost blind. And whatever it was that was wrong with his eyes apparently looked really, really bad. So people didn't like to look at Paul. So there's a couple of pretty good handicaps for a preacher. You can't see much, and you look like awful. What did Paul do? He wrote large letters, but he wrote. He didn't see very well, but he had people to travel with him and helped him. And he made tents. I don't know how bad his eye problem was, but... uh, it was bad enough that it, it, it was an obvious bother, let's put it that way. And ugly doesn't help either. And, you know, we've lived with that a long time. So he had difficulties. Did it slow him down? Not apparently. I was like one born out of time. I'm thankful for what I got, and I'm moving forward with it. Got to do what I got to do. So it doesn't matter what state we find ourselves in. Uh, I've known people that had serious problems, either blind or whatever, but they found a way to call and encourage others. 
They found a way to help others somehow, some way, rather than sitting around saying, oh, I'm so blind. I'm so blind. I wish I could die. I'm just blind. There's no reason for me to live. I'm just blind. No. They found a way to encourage, to strengthen, to help. You know, when you receive a note from somebody that you know had a tough time doing what they did for you, whatever it might be, you tend to think about that and appreciate it more than someone who just does something for you offhandedly that's easy for them. That doesn't mean much. It's just, it was easy to do, so I did it. But if it was hard for them to do, and it was a, it was a hardship, then you tend to appreciate it more. And you know, the Father and the Son are that way too. Christ even made it very clear, you know, here's these rich men running around and blowing a trumpet when they throw money in, and they want credit for what they're doing. And here's this widow who was poor and could barely get by, and she came in and gave a mite. I don't know how big a mite was, but in bugs are very, very tiny little things. It wasn't much. But you know what? That was hard for her to do. And Christ said, she gave all that she had. Now, he appreciated that. Far more than these guys that were making a big deal out of what they could give and who they were and all that. Because it was hard for her to do that. I think about the widow there with Elijah. God apparently told Elijah to come uh, to this widow, and God set the thing up. It'd be hard for us in our world to grasp and understand, I suppose, but uh, he had Elijah live with a young widow and her son for one and possibly, very possibly, three years. That would uh, not fit our Protestant thoughts and morality of the way things ought to be, but that's the way God caused it to happen. And I would assume that probably nothing happened between Elijah and the widow uh, that was immoral, but he resurrected her son. But think about that scenario. Here Elijah comes up on her and addresses her and, and asks for something to drink and something to eat. And she says, well, I really don't have anything. I have just a little bit left, and I'm going to go fix it for my son and I, and we're so close to starvation and death that we're going to eat this and lay down and die. That's all we have. And he said, make some for me anyway. And then the barrel never went empty. He lived there for at least a year, maybe three, and there was enough food for all three of them. So, God called upon that widow to make a great sacrifice, and she did. <coughs> she did everything Elijah asked of her. She still wasn't convinced about him, though. And then when her young son died, he was young enough, Elijah could pick him up and take him upstairs to his room. When the young son died... God caused that son to be resurrected through Elijah. 
And then she said, now I know you're a man of God. I kind of thought it. I sort of believed it. I wasn't absolutely sure. Now I know. So God worked things out for the widow, and he worked them out for Elijah. And he used that as a great lesson for us today. So, Elijah even had a self-pity party, remember? He thought, oh, Jezebel's after me. She's going to kill me. Uh, things are bad. I'm just going to go out here at the brook and die. I just, oh, things are going so bad for poor Elijah, poor old me. Well, God took care of him, even sent some ravens to feed him. Just, hey, how are you going to feel sorry for yourself? you got birds bringing you food all the time. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you got no excuses, man. <laughs> Finally, he says, get up and go back to work. <laughs> this ain't working for you. God has a great sense of humor. I <laughs> I think about that here. You know, oh, poor, poor me. Here comes a raven and drops some food on you. How do you feel sorry? You don't have to do a thing, and here's food coming, one after another, like you're a baby bird. Just open up, ah, and you get fed. I imagine he began to feel a little sheepish at some point there, you know. And when God says, get up and go to work, he says, yeah, I think you're right. I guess I better do that. Anyway. So he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So he became thankful for what God did do for him, and then he worked harder than any of the apostles worked. And that was just, he's not bragging here, it's just a fact. <clears throat> And I think it was partly because he was so thankful for having been delivered from being a murderer and a hater that the zeal with which he had killed God's people, he now wanted to save them. So it was a great motivator that God had saved him from what he was. Therefore, whether it were I or they... So we preach, and so you believed. So it doesn't matter, he says, whether I preached it or the other apostles preached it. You believed it, and here you are. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, they might say, well, yeah, Christ was resurrected, but he was special. But me? Why would God resurrect me? Not only that, Cousin Bruce died three weeks ago, and we had to bury him because he began to stink awful. Dead's dead. And when we see dead, it looks dead. And it rots. So they were having trouble believing that Christ could resurrect them. I'm not so sure about that. But if there be no resurrection of the dead... Then is Christ not risen? He was human. He wasn't God anymore. He was human when he walked this earth. And when he died, he died. 
And he was in the sepulcher three days and didn't breathe and didn't eat and didn't do anything because he was dead. Didn't think. Now, if he could be raised, why couldn't you? If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. So he said, if you're here, and you believe Christ is the Son of God, and that he came and lived on the earth and died and was resurrected, and you don't think you can be, then your religion's in vain. It's not doing you any good. I mean, so what if he was raised? If you're not, what good did this do you? Well, you better believe that it wasn't just him. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised up, if so be that the dead rise not. If there's no resurrection, what's the point? Why even have religion? If it's just this life, why bother? Why fight and try to be good when you could be bad a whole lot easier? It's a lot easier to be bad than it is good. Have you ever noticed that? I don't know, maybe you're special and good comes easy to you, but I've not found that to be true of many people. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. And he's implying there that since he was raised, you're not in your sins anymore. So walk away from them, forget them, and move on. Serve, give, be thankful. If you're counting your blessings, you don't have time to feel sorry for your problems. And they also which are per- fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Of all the people who walk the earth, if there's no resurrection, a Christian is the most miserable person on earth that there is. Do we grasp that? Because nobody else is told to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Nobody is taught to walk as he walked and not sin and not make errors. Nobody else is told to overcome their nature in being what they are but Christians. We are called to go against every feeling, every thought, every desire of the human mind and body. And if there's no reward for doing that, then we're miserable. You've got people out here, they're just doing what they want. They're not constrained to do anything a certain way. If it feels good, do it, is their philosophy. So they just go about life and then it's over. But if you can... If you can accept Satan's religion, then you you don't really believe in the resurrection. You just believe you don't really die. But uh, you can do whatever you want, and since you're under the grace of Christ, as soon as your body dies, your soul flits off to heaven, and you get your wings in your heart, and everything's good forever after. Protestantism is not really that hard on you. But living a true life, of God in a Christian way is very difficult. So if we don't have a future, we're the most miserable people on earth. 
But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, every one of us, just like Adam, are intended to die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, he's not explaining the whole uh, panoply of resurrections or the, the plan of God whereby different ones are re- resurrected at different times. He does say here, every man in his own order. But he says that all people are going to be resurrected. As, as in Adam, every human being dies. So also in Christ shall every human being be made alive. So there has to be a plan for, at some point, every human being to be made alive again. But every man in his order, there's an order of resurrections. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. And then he goes on to explain some more that we'll get to later. But I'm out of time for today, so we better stop right there. Uh, let's not feel sorry for ourselves this week. Let's be thankful that we breathe. Let's be thankful that we have the truth of God. Let's think forward. Let's think of serving and helping and giving and living instead of feeling sorry for ourselves for what we don't have. Be ye thankful.